So someone tell me, um, orphans are already, well, actually, let me start properly. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah, wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa min wala ma ba'd. Someone give us a quick review of when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us to speak to orphans with ma'roof. Why does he do that with orphans? Because we have mentioned that the word ma'roof was usually used in relationships and in marriages. Okay, so um, kids and their parents and their uncles and relatives and also between husband and wife. Allah says this is the basic principle of all close relationships. But when it came to orphans, the exact same word was used for them and how we should speak and treat them. Why? Someone talk to me. Why was that so important when you were dealing or where you were interacting with orphans in particular? It should be very obvious. Hmm? It should be very obvious. No one knows. Allah says, وَقُولُوا لَهُمْ قَوْلًا مَعْرُوفًا Say to them words of ma'roof. In other words, you're supposed to talk to orphans the same way you talk to your own spouses and your own family and relatives? Yes. <laughs> That's the way to treat them. You're supposed to treat these children exactly the way you would treat your own children and your own family and relatives. That's the general basic principle of Qur'an when you're dealing with kids. So we took from that the benefit was that um, you don't just treat less fortunate kids this way. But the overall universal lesson for all of us is generally this is the way you treat all children. Our Prophet ﷺ had a habit of whenever he saw children, he would sometimes play with them. There are narrations of him. He would take kids and kind of throw them up in the air and catch them, be very playful. There are narrations of him even kissing children on their head and making dua for them that Allah protects them from evil eye and things like that. So there was always this natural connection of mercy, respect, kindness. All of those things fall under the principle of ma'roof. Um, so far, we had started part two of Surah An-Nisa. And part two actually started off with a very harsh, somewhat aggressive verse of the Qur'an. Uh, before we even look at that, what was part one then, generally speaking, all about in Surah An-Nisa? Now, this is particularly um, important for the students that have been with us since day one. So, quick recap. We have looked at Surah An-Nisa as, as being one of those surahs where Allah speaks to all of mankind, general principles for all of mankind. In what sense? Can anyone share some thought on that? Your hint would be the first ayah in Surah An-Nisa. What were some of the subjects that it captured and addressed? Ya ayyuhan nas, ittaqu rabbakum. So if somebody asks you, what's this chapter of women all about? Your first response to that will be part one of the entire surah, which led up to verse 10. So the first 10 verses all were connected 
They were intertwined between, between one another. They, they were all giving somewhat a similar message. What was that? Your, your clue is the fir- very first verse. Hmm? Someone tell me something? Anything? What happened to you guys today? Usually you guys are very responsive, huh? Yes. Go ahead. Okay, so... Uh-huh. Okay, so taqwa was a major subject in part one. Was it something very generic or was it a call just to Muslims? Ya ayyuhan nas. Who's Allah talking to? All of us, so all of mankind. There was a general message to all of mankind that you all come from the same father. He created you from one nafs, from one soul, meaning you are all children or sons of Adam. Right? You're all part of that same family. That's one of Quran's many ways where it kind of denounces any form of racism, tribalism, discrimination, things like that. From that subject, it captured uh, or it introduced to us orphans. And part one of this surah was all about respect for the orphans. It was about tolerance. It was about um, being very, uh, what's the word, responsible in terms of their wealth. Making sure that everything that these orphans had inherited was actually used and it belonged to them. That the caregivers of these orphans did not in any way, shape or form use or abuse any of that wealth even if they were, i.e., using some of that wealth to care for these orphans. You still had a limitation of how much you could spend on them. So one of the things that we, we said was, one of the verses captured was, that um, if you're going to spend on orphans, then you spend the bare minimum that they need and require to you know, achieve the basic necessities for day-to-day living. And Allah says, So no doubt those who consume the wealth of orphans wrongfully, they're only consuming into their stomachs, their bellies, nothing but fire and cast into sa'ir. We said that sa'ir is the kind of fire that is bursting with flame. Lots of flames, very aggressive type of fire. Last question, and then we'll start today's uh, journey, inshallah. Qisma. This word came in this particular, or this first section, qisma. Allah says, وَإِذَا حَضَرَ الْقِسْمَةِ أُلُوا الْقُرْبَةِ وَالْيَتَامَ وَالْمَسَاكِينَ If they were present at a qisma, whether they be the orphans, whether they be um, the miskin, the needy. Allah says, فَآتُوا أُجُورَهُمْ Give them a portion. What's all of this about? What's a qisma? Hmm? What was the qisma all about? So, so think in context now that these orphans, there was some kind of gathering that happened. And... All the orphans and the poor, they came to this gathering. 
What is this gathering all about? So these are important, important subjects that are captured only in the surah. You'll never hear qisma in another surah for the rest of the Qur'an. So it's unique to this surah, Surah An-Nisa. What's, what was the qisma all about? And Allah says that all the kids that are there at the qisma need to get a portion of what's being handed out. So what's this qisma thing all about? It's a division of inheritance to whom? Maybe a selected few? Yeah. These were just a selected few that gathered and they were going to get some of the wealth that was rightfully theirs. But the only thing is, who was also invited or who also came and was part of that get-together or that gathering was some of the poor and the needy, some of the kids who basically had no inheritance and nothing. So they also attended that gathering. What does Allah say to do with them? Did Allah say, oh, anybody who didn't belong in that gathering, just kick them out. Be like, oh, you're not supposed to be here, out. What did Allah say to do? Hmm? You must, must provide something fair and decent for them. Again, they're not even under your care. Right? They're not even under your care. They're just random street kids that sort of popped in and be like, Oh, what's going on here? Oh my God, they're giving out food. They're giving out money. Wow, okay, let's just stay here. Maybe we'll get something. Allah says, Oh, those kids, yeah, yeah they have a haq now. If they come to this qisma gathering where wealth is divided, they need to, and you should and must give them something. Again, showing you how important Qur'an pays attention to the needs of children. Them being your kids or not, them being Muslim or, or not, is completely irrelevant. None of that is talked about here. None of the, nothing to do with their culture or their background or their religion is mentioned at all. So there's a general principle that Muslims in particular are getting in the surah, in the introduction of the surah. When it comes to children, Ainamakan, wherever they may be and whatever circumstance, you and I, just by default being people of Iman, are required to show a basic level of respect and care to children. Okay? So how does that look in, like in 2019 then? So let's put aside orphans for a minute because our interaction with orphans is minimal. If not, it doesn't even exist. So when we see young kids running around in the masjid or running around in the hallways, right? How do we implement some of the principles that are taught to us in the surah now in a practical way with kids just all over the place in our homes and in our masjids? What do we do? And please don't think about what masjids say and do with them. Right? Because that, that's the reason why we're talking about this. Because usually it sounds like this, doesn't it? When kids are running, hey, where's your parents? Get out of here. Go downstairs. Or sometimes, dude will pick up the microphone. All these kids here, where are your parents? Right? None of them are allowed to pray with us or something like that. I heard with my own ears once that an imam, before he started prayer, he heard a child coughing, coughing all the time. Child was with his dad. And he actually asked the father to remove the kid out of the line. So, what are we supposed to do? How do we practice some of this stuff? Respect. Does that mean letting them do what they want to do? 
So we can still enforce rules, which of course all kids need anyway, right? How do you do that? So, and, and you still stay within the framework of these verses. How do you do that? First of all, our dean is very clear that children um, are not inherently corrupt in any way, shape, or form. They are normal, regular, day-to-day -day human beings that we appreciate, that we should respect, that we should treat with kindness like our own kids. Why? Because when you're a child, that is the only thing that really speaks loudly and clearly to you. It's not probably instruction, but it's the way that in instruction is disseminated to these kids. It's not, maybe they don't get what you're saying, but if you're nice about it, even they don't, they don't have a clue what you're saying, there's a good chance that that kid will do what? They'll kind of stand there and listen, even if you'll have to repeat yourself like 17 times. If you do that respectively, that's the point. These ayat are not trying to tell you and I how we can keep kids under control. It's teaching us how to stay consistent as part of our respect with young children. That you never lose it. You don't lose your cool with kids. Even as a parent, you can get frustrated, you can get upset, but you never allow those feelings or those emotions to lose control. Because when you lose control, then guess what? You start saying and doing things that you know are fundamentally wrong as a parent. And that always, always has its consequences. Always. That's where those like talk shows like Dr. Phil and all of those guys come out, right? Those troubled kids that come from homes where they can't communicate and can't seem to connect with their mom and dad. And the, the parents are sitting right there on the show and they're talking back and forth and they're literally like cursing one another in front of the whole world. So Quran seeks to um, prevent all of that from being born or sprouting in the relationship at a very early age. So, to conclude this, our attitude with young people is always and, will, and begins with respect. Treat them like human beings. And I, think, I don't think we need to be taught how to do that. You know, all, us as parents and adults here, I don't think we need to be taught to do that. Maybe there are some who need that, but at least for you and I, especially you and I who have children, or around kids, we know very well. When we keep our cool, so sometimes you're like, oh, so frustrating. This is the 10th time I have to tell them this. But you keep your cool. And you can let out your frustration, but in a way that's controlled, and a lesson is going to come out from that. Then these are all the basic fundamentals of parenting. But in this surah, these are the basic principles of how you communicate and treat children all over the planet. So may Allah make us from amongst them. Allahumma ameen. Orphans, by the way, are the most vulnerable of all children, right? So they are the ones, of course, you know, no family, you know, no, no parents. So they're the most vulnerable. So extra care, patience, and tolerance, and all of those things have to be shown to them more so than others. Um, okay. This is a great time for this computer to do that. <laughs> Out of all the days of the week, you chose to update yourself now. 
Mm. What's even more sad is I'm talking to the computer. Wow. <laughs> so we're going to have to, uh, I guess we're going to have to wait for a bit until it does what it's, what it's doing. Okay. Can, can we continue at least with some review in the meantime? Okay. فَلْيَتَّقُوا اللَّهُ وَلْيَقُولُوا قَوْلًا سَدِيدًا So this particular verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is one of the last verses I believe we took uh, in last week's session. Allah says, they better seek protection from Allah. فَلْيَتَّقُوا اللَّهُ so, in other words, the context of this verse is very simple, right? So, then those who possibly left behind weak children. So, imagine the inheritors are a little, are a little well off and they got children or they adopted kids or they were in charge of kids who were very weak in the sense... Inheritance-wise, wealth-wise, they didn't inherit much. Just a few coins, a few dollars here and there, that's it. Allah says, خَافُوا عَلَيْهِمْ right? You better be fearful of them. فَلْيَتَّقُوا اللَّهِ And have taqwa of Allah. وَلْيَقُولُوا قَوْلًا سَدِيدًا And speak with, to them with the most clear and upright speech. What's this verse highlighting? This verse is talking about a specific group of orphans now. The weak, who didn't have much, Allah gave a specific instruction for them. So He said, خَافُوا عَلَيْهِمْ right, To be fearful of them. In what sense? How are you fearful of these particular orphans that you know, are, are weak in terms of inheritance, are, are, are less fortunate in terms of inheritance? What is Allah saying to you here? Don't just drive them away, but be concerned about their welfare. Okay, so, so be concerned about their welfare. Okay, that's for, with all of these kids. But specifically with this group, you take what? An extra stance. You, you go above and beyond the norm now. You're giving them inheritance, although they don't deserve it. Even if they don't deserve it, right? So then Allah says there's two things you need to be very cautious about when you're dealing with weak and vulnerable kids. Okay, let's look at it from a generic point of view, right? Allah says, number one, فَلْيَتَّقُوا Let me ask you, what does taqwa of Allah, how is that manifested through our treatment of kids? Because فَلْيَتَّقُوا is usually said to us, when it comes to um, obedience, when it comes to devotion, worship, all of those things, marriage and being right, righteous and fulfilling one another's rights, when it comes to individual responsibilities, all throughout the Qur'an we're told to have taqwa, taqwa, taqwa. But now in this ayah, Allah finished talking about kids and says, فَلْيَتَّقُوا And all of you better have taqwa of Allah. How do we see taqwa of Allah in the way that we treat kids? How do we see that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Anybody want to add to that? 
Hmm? Yeah. Good. So the way our authority as parents, it's very easy for us to have control, dictate, um, instruct, control. Doesn't that tell us something about authority, power? What is the number one ingredient for anyone who has authority or power over whether it be your family, a community, a country? What's the one thing Allah says is universal that all of you must have? If you learn nothing about authority and leadership, this is the one thing you should have. You need to have taqwa of Allah. You need to watch out because everything you think you can or cannot do, Allah can make it happen. So that's actually a warning, a very serious warning for all of us because all of us as adults have some level and some form of authority and leadership over something. So Allah is basically saying, taqwa here is watch out because I'm watching you. So don't, you can fool these kids, you can fool the people you're in charge of, but don't try to fool me. I am Al-Jabbar. One of his names is Al-Jabbar. Jabbar from Jabarun means Allah can force you to be something or to do something. So Allah can forcibly do that. We talked about Qawlan Sadira already, which means to ensure that your speech is clear. There is no ambiguity in it. Whatever you need to say, whatever you need to instruct, whatever you need to get across, make sure you do so in a clear-cut fashion. It's explicit. Um, okay. So we want to get into... So, you know, in the meantime, as this computer is doing that, it looks like it's going to take a while. So I'm going to go into your booklets. Which is unfortunate because... I have a lot of additional notes on that slide. Okay. If I remember correctly, we had stopped at 15. Tilka hududullah. Good, we did that. وَمَيَّ عَصِ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ وَيَتَعَدَّ حُدُودَهُ يُدْخِلُهُ نَارًا خَالِدًا. Okay. Okay, so this is the next, so verse number 15, students, is where we will pick up today's discussion. Okay. Okay. Okay, so from this particular verse, so we're going to now verse number 15. Everybody with me? It's on page 19. That's where we're at. So I'm going to rely on my handwritten notes here. Okay. is the previous verse, and for them is a humiliating punishment. Muhin, you were alone. At least no one sees you're being punished, but it still ends up happening. So... Our last sentence or subject is we were talking about one of the um, description of the punishment in the fire. And one of, those way, one of the ways the Qur'an describes that punishment is he calls it muhin. And we mentioned that the word uh, muhin is 
in addition to the punishment itself, that person is left alone, isolated. So not only do they suffer, but they suffer by themselves. So whoever they scream out for or they yell for help or any kind of relief, none of that is heard. And so this is part of the punishment of Ahlul Jahannam and may Allah protect us from that. وَاللَّاتِ يَأْتِينَ الْفَاحِشَةَ مِنْ نِسَائِكُمْ And this is verse number 15. And as for the women that commit any sort of shamelessness or rudeness, now Allah called here in this ayah, scholars had differed what the word fahisha meant in this ayah. But in, before we translate that, we, we need to understand this word fahisha. Fahisha is a very common word found throughout the Qur'an. And it usually refers to acts that are shameful, that are looked down upon, that even society and culture frowns upon. That no matter what it is, if where you live, this is considered to be something inappropriate, unacceptable, that usually falls under the, the subject of fahisha. And so Allah says now, particularly for those who came with this kind of attribute or this kind of behavior. Now some of the ulama specifically called fahisha here, called it zina. Um, others call it just whatever shamelessness that was known in that culture or society. Allah Azzawajal continues and he says, then seek witnesses against them, four out of uh, four out of minkum yourselves. So in other words, there had to be at least four witnesses seeing this and, 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 and watching this unfold. Um, the idea behind that is it's almost impossible for this to happen. And uh, even though that it is not possible for four people to be at the same place at the same time to observe the same thing, um, there is actually a hidden clause behind that. And that is when these kinds of acts happen behind closed doors and you leave them unattended in the sense that if you know it's happening and you're not addressing some of these issues, then it eventually becomes the norm in public and society. That, that's the idea here, right? In terms of when Allah says, okay, I want the impossible to happen, which is for people to witness this. We know for a fact that would almost never happen, right? The idea is that this act is such, it's such a grave sin and it's so important for you and I as culture and society to be aware that if some of these things are happening behind closed doors, then you and I are going to have to figure out a way to talk about them and, of course, to try to stop them from happening, right? So it's a call. It's a call for you and I to acknowledge shameful behavior at all levels, but specifically that which is happening behind closed doors and behind closed walls. And the fear is that you don't want it to be a public norm. And that's what the fitna of... Um, the evil in society comes from, right? Eventually, when something becomes so normal, eventually, what ends up happening? People don't see a problem with it anymore, right? If you take, you know, I had a student a long time ago that was part of a committee in a, in a really, really uh, famous, you know, clothing store here. 
And she was part of the design committee that every year they would get together and talk about new designs that they would, you know, put together and release. And one of the things that they look at, one of the subjects that they talk about is where, what part of the body could we sort of tighten up and expose when the, when the new summer comes along. So actually one of the subjects, or one of the things they really look at. So they'll have designs in front of them and samples, and they would actually look, okay, if we tighten up here, if we cut this piece off. The point is, is that you and I or other cultures may look at that and be like, wow, I can't believe that they're actually doing that. But to other cultures, that's actually the norm. So what? That's the way we are, that's the way we dress, and that's per perfectly fine. So the Qur'an is seeking to protect all of that from happening. It's the normality behind some of this uh, shamelessness. The shameful acts will always be there. Do we agree? It's always going to happen, and it has happened even at the time of our Messenger, alayhi salatu wasalam. It's the normal normality behavior, behavior behind it is what you try your very best to keep under control. And for you and I, that's a really tough thing to do, right? Um, so what other, um, what other points here can we look at in terms of what we need to capture as one of the main and most important lessons in this ayah is we certainly need to rethink some of the things that we might consider to be right that are actually wrong. So sometimes culture adds to shameful behavior. Do we agree? Sometimes there are some cultures out there. Um, I, I, I'll even go as far as saying some so-called Muslim cultures that really do some really crazy stuff. And it, and it may not be, even be actual behavior. It could just be the, the tone and speech and the way, you know, you, you see your child, hey, you, and you call your child like an animal or something, right? I don't have to give you examples but sometimes, you know, parents would do that with their own kids, will call them certain things and, and give certain labels to them. Even call, some, sometimes you hear some parents will call their kids shaitan. You know, and, and that's perfectly fine, at least for them. Yeah, I'm sure, you, I'm sure some of us, we hear that from time to time, right? So all of this stuff is all under fahisha. So in essence, what ends up happening, here's the point. Here's why we get this warning in this ayah. Is that if you leave shamelessness, um, you know, you, you start to ignore it and you don't take it seriously anymore, then we end up in essence start living like animals. All right? This is captured in another verse in Surah Al-A'raf, right? Allah describes certain things, characteristics about people who've reached this point. So three things that are highlighted of some of the characteristics of those who fall and get adapted to this type of behavior. They have hearts that can't comprehend anything. Does this sound familiar? You ever hear, see, or talk to people that are like this? You talk to them and you're like, Achi, the way you talk, that's, that's really bad. Why would you say those things? Well, I don't think it's bad. I think it's perfectly fine. Calling somebody an idiot is like, it's perfectly normal to me. As a matter of fact, you're an idiot. <laughs> you know, it's just... And they have no problem with that. Yeah. And then you're trying to give them some advice. Maybe some of us who are parents here, we, we try to advise our kids, give them some instruction, 
try to teach them some lessons about our deen. And they're looking at you like, Mom, Dad, why are you so strict? All I'm asking you to do is to pray. Get up in the morning and pray your fajr. You know, and they're looking at you like something's wrong with you. Really, get up early in the morning and wet myself, wet my limbs and go and pray? That's crazy. Yeah. So you're trying to advise them. You bring them to the classes, but they get the best sleep of their lives. They have hearts, but they just kind of sit there. They can't comprehend, understand, and internalize anything. Then Allah continues. These are Allah's words, not me. They have eyes, but they're spiritually blind. Spiritually blind. They see a lot of that shameful behavior around them, but at the same time, they kind of don't see it. You know why? Because they started adapting some of it. You know, mom, dad, I love when my dreams are ripped over here and ripped over here. It's the style, now it's okay. You know, I'll wear a long top and it'll cover everything. You're missing the point, right? You're missing the point. You know, I, I've seen this before as well where um, some young people walked into masjids with like t-shirts that had like swear words on them. I've seen it with my own eyes, right? And they saw nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, one of this, this one brother, this is a long time ago, um, he had a really, really explicit word, that four-letter word across his shirt. And he came in and he started praying. So, so the imam actually, when he was done, he was praying his sunnah, so the imam walked up to him. I was younger, so I was just kind of sitting, watching all the action unfold, right? So I had courtside seats, if you'd like, right? So I'm like, oh man, he's going to go up to him. So he came and went up to the kid and told him something. And the kid says, it's in my heart. <laughs> Allah sees my heart, not this. That was it. He just went to his quarter and continued doing what he needed to do. So, I, I, you know, they have eyes, but they just can't really see anything wrong with it. Then Allah adds to it. If you think it's bad enough already, adds to it. Then they have ears that just don't hear anything at all. Same idea. Listen to how Allah described them. These people are like cattle. We talked about cattle, I think, earlier on. Right? So the whole idea of what cattle are. You know, especially cows in particular. You know? So Allah says they're like cattle. They're not getting the message, but you still keep trying, trying to just sit there. This is the part of the ayah that really frightens me. Is that despite Allah compares us or this group to these kinds of animals, Allah says, actually, no, all of that group, they're far worse and more despicable than the animals themselves. And then Allah says, they are heedless. You know, when Allah uses the word ghafil, ghafla, it's kind of like the last resort. If somebody reaches the state of ghafla, when Allah says, okay, this person's heedless from head to toe, that's when you just have to pray and hope for the best. So we ask Allah to protect us from that. Because that verse in Surah Al-A'raf is actually describing the three characteristics that are known and highlighted of the people of Jahannam. They have hearts that don't comprehend, eyes that don't see, and ears that don't hear. Those three characteristics are some of the few that Allah talks about, that these are the characteristics of the inhabitants of the fire. So may Allah protect us from that. 
So we talked about wild behavior. We also, one thing I also want to mention to you about fahisha, it's very similar to the word wahshun, which is a wild animal. So if you put these two together, because they look similar, they're scaled similar as well. Um, the ulama, they say that when we're talking about shamelessness and we use the word fahish, it's compared to the word wahish or wahshun, which is the animal that's out of control. So put it together. The shamelessness that's captured using this word is the kind of behavior that's really crazy. It's wild and crazy behavior. Um, the second or the last benefit that I want to share with you with respect to this um, ayah is that we don't want at the end of the day to have any scandal out of this verse or out of what is being captured in this verse. So in other words, going back to the beginning of verse number 15, right? Is that when Allah is talking about these particular individuals that were involved in something, right? And He describes that it was fahish. It's not a time where the people of Medina would get a, gather around and be like, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? Could you believe that? And it becomes like, you know, a scandal around the community and around the city of Medina. You know, this is a big problem in our communities. Like if somebody hears a divorce happens in a, in a home, she got married three times and that one broke too. Like you're entitled to some sort of intelligence report of what is happening in someone's home. You have no right to comment on the affairs of what is happening in people's private lives, even if it's fahish. We have no right to comment about it. So even if you know something about someone, the sunnah and the message of the Qur'an is, remember just prior to this ayah we were talking about taqwa. So part of that is what you know is kept to you and it should never be the subject of you know, juicy conversation. And it should never reach to the point where others are also inquiring and said, I heard this, I heard that. Even if you know, say, no, this, it's nothing important. Forget about that. Imagine if we as a culture and community could do that. Every time we heard about something serious happening in someone else's life or someone else's home, imagine that was our attitude. You know how quickly communities would prosper just because of this one trait was either pushed aside or under control. Um, it would be an incredible thing for us to see. May Allah give us strength. So we, we know not to spread these things. We know not to assume about people. Um, I actually wrote here in my notes. So I wrote this about five years ago, and I wrote a note to myself that sometimes khatibs like to use juicy details to make their khutbas more interesting, which of course doesn't help either. I don't know why I wrote that, but it's here. So explicit details that should be discussed in private. Um, so the point is, at the end of the day, Allah made zina something private. And so we should also, when we discuss it, also make that private too. And the last thing, this I think is important for the, the young students that are here. Um, sometimes, you know, we get engaged with jokes and humor that are shameful as well. Right? which is also something looked down upon and criticized in Qur'an as well. Even just joking about this stuff isn't right. So even if you get yourself in a circle where either you or somebody else is just talking about anything, you know, whether talking about another person or their behavior or anything like that, 
in and of itself is something pretty serious in Qur'an and it's captured under this word of fahisha. Um, okay, I think we're getting somewhere here now. Let's just, uh, let's just see if our slides will... Yeah. Yeah. Which is a bit, which is a problem in and of itself because sometimes the khatib would not realize that he's actually contributing to it by doing that. Right? And um it's it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that sometimes that happens. Um let's get to because I have a lot of stuff prepared for today. By the way, um, for, for next week, what are we doing? It's the March break. So uh, usually the norm here at IIT is all the classes are paused during the March break. So uh, the assumption is that we don't have class next week. So is, would that be okay with all of you? Unless you are determined that you want to be here, then we can still make that happen. But for the most part, all the classes here are suspended for our next week. <clears throat> How many of you are okay with uh, taking the break? Oh, wow. So are you saying that the rest of you who didn't raise your hands want to be here next week? Okay. <laughs> that um, I didn't see coming. Okay. Let's let, let me let me ask that question again at the end of today's class. Okay. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> let's go on to let's let's continue with verse number fifteen. Okay. وَالَّتِي يَأْتِيرَ الْفَاحِشَةَ مِنْ فَاسْتَشِلُوا أَرْبَعَ مِنْ فَإِنْ شَهِدُوا فَأَمْسِكُوهُنَّ فِي الْبُيُوتِ and in fact, if there is a witness to the act, keep them under house arrest until death come to take them away or Allah makes another way out of them. So a couple of things as you see in front of you, this ayat like, ayat like these aim to keep this behavior behind closed doors, which we've touched on. Wahish means wild behavior and wild animals are called wahshi, which we've already touched on. There should be no scandal against these women. And sometimes in our gatherings, as we mentioned, so a lot of these things we've, we've um, cut through already. Nothing that I want to highlight. You have on page 20 uh, a couple paragraphs there about um, just adding more towards explaining the word um, fahisha and fashion. Nothing that I really want to, um, to highlight except the end of the verse, فَأَمْسِكُوهُنْ so when Allah says, This is Qur'an's way of saying to um, keep them in a secluded area that is protected until either revelation or some other type, kind of injunction is revealed of what exactly is to be done here. So the, the women that got involved in this and made this mistake... So Allah is saying that at least for now, 
that they should be um, protected from the public, right, to an extent, until more verses and ayat, because why, are revealed. Because we are still at the very early stages of the ahkam and rulings of what to do when something like this happens within that community. So those verses of how to deal with this sort of thing have not been revealed yet. So that is why it ends up saying, keep them under house arrest, you know, as long as it needs to be. Now, that in and of itself has its own fiqh, you know, of what, is, what it means under, you know, Islamic law for house arrest and so on. It's a long, massive discussion. As a matter of fact, Imam Al-Qurtubi has a, like chunks of his volume devoted to just talking about these different ahkam, which is really something I don't want to, I don't want to address. We don't need to get into that. Yeah. You see, the thing is, it still is. And, and we had mentioned that the lewdness behavior here, all the ulama differ on it. Some said it was zina, some said it was the things that led up to that behavior afterwards, etc. So what we say is that it is a combination of all of this. You, you were going to say something, sister? I was just saying when he's talking about house arrest and he says about mm -hmm. that verses, don't the verses of Surah Nur advocate They do. They do to an extent. Yeah, and of course, as you know, that that surah um, comes much later, right? So for now, we're just going to keep this in context, right? But yes, there are verses in other surahs as well, some of which is found in Surah An-Nur, some is found in, in parts of Baqarah as well, um, that actually add to what is the responsibility afterwards when this kind of behavior um, takes place, okay? حَتَّى يَتَوَفَاهُنَّ الْمَا أَوْ يَجَعَلَ اللَّهُ لَهُنَّ السَّبِيلَ Ayah number 16, وَاللَّذَانِ يَأْتِيَانِهَا مِنْكُمْ فَآذُهُمَا فَإِنْ تَابَ وَأَصْلَحَا فَأَعْرِضُوا عَنْهُمَا And the two who committed among you. So, dishonor them both, but if they repent and correct themselves, leave them alone. Indeed, Allah is ever accepting of repentance and merciful. You see this verse? This verse is one of those verses that it's very easy to read in Qur'an. So if one of these, like, so if the two parties come and say, you know what, we have done something wrong, but uh, we, you know, repent to Allah. So, so, so this is what's happening. In a Islamic court, in front of the judges, the judge will ask these two individuals, okay, what do you have to say about your behavior? If at that very moment they say that we have done something wrong and we repent to Allah for it, case closed. It's that simple. Case closed. Because why? Allah is, is the one that accepts repentance and He is the most merciful. You remember how back in the days in our other classes we always used to say that we will never truly understand the level of compassion and mercy that Allah has over His creation? This is an example of one of them. Right? We will never truly understand the capacity of Allah's mercy over His creation. Why? Because human beings with one another, we have a certain limit or level of how much mercy we're willing to show someone. You know, eventually if somebody has wronged us in any way, there's a good chance that in 
some families and cultures, that relationship is done. Others, if you say one word that's offensive, it's done. Others, they'll give and take a, you know, a year or two, blah, blah, blah. Okay, you know what? I'm done with you. But in Quran, Allah just says one sentence and the case is closed. So this here is basically these two individuals came in front and, and had a trial because of their behavior. Now, of course, in our context, in our culture and society, this is not applicable. What is applicable in, in our society is more or less that um, repentance and tawbah and, of course, to change your life, do the things that you and I would know and we need to do in order to protect ourselves from falling into any kind of fahisha behavior. Any kind of uh, behavior that falls within that category is the thing that's obligated on you and I. And this is a, a, a um, fatwa that many of the ulama they give with respect to uh, people who live in societies where there is no Islamic court, etc. Then this is the last and only option. Make tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Be sincere in your tawbah. Change your life. Do what needs to be done. Bismillah. Leave the rest to him subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? Haya is being snatched away from all of us at an early age, from all we are exposed to. Do you agree? Yes. What's haya? How is it usually translated? Haya. Haya. When I say to you, you need to have haya. Modesty. modesty, right? Modesty, right? What's modesty? Don't say haya. What's modesty? Yeah. Hmm? Narrow it down. More. You're right, but more specific. What's when we say you need to be modest, or you know, Islam encourages us to be modest and have haya. It's such a broad term. So, what is what? What are you supposed to do or have if we're saying that you should have you should be modest? Still too broad. Hmm? You see why I ask this question? See why I ask this question? Right? It's because it's a broad term. Modesty, it Islamic, you know, from an Islamic perspective, is all of the qualities in you as a human being that keeps you under control. So your shyness, your taqwa, all of these little things, your kindness, your gentleness with people, your patience, um, anything that you can think of that keeps your behavior and your attitude from going out of control and acting and behaving in a way that you yourself can recognize and know that's not me. All of this falls under this massive subject of haya. And the Messenger والسلام, told us that haya is from what? It's from iman. So when you have that kind of control over all of these beautiful qualities within, it is a sign that you have true faith and iman with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Somebody who can keep themselves, you know, their anger and their frustration intact. You know, you want to curse, but you don't. You hold back. Instead, you're like, whatever it is. If you go for a walk, if you're really upset about something, that's all part of haya. Because that's you... That's you attacking and keeping control of the steering wheel that he doesn't go all over the place. All of that control is part of haya, okay? Um, then Allah continues and He says, إِنَّمَا تَوْبَةُ عَلَى اللَّهِ 
repentance only is mandated on Allah for those who knowingly did a wrong deed. This is interesting. Now, those of you who study Arabic, you're going you're gonna to certainly appreciate and love this ayah. Because Allah now mentions here, Indeed, tawbah is mandated on Allah. First of all, what's tawbah? When we say repentance, what, what do we mean by that? What is tawbah in the sharia? Hmm? What's that? So is it, it's kind of like an attitude or, or feeling? Okay. Okay, okay, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so tawbah then is some kind of physical change, which is sprouted through this attitude of remorse and regret, right? So if, when you do something wrong and you feel, you know, horrible, you feel the regret. Oh my God, I can't believe I just did that. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I acted this way. That's not tawbah. That's you feeling remorse and regret. Tawbah is now you take those feelings and it manifests into actual physical change. So the haram picture that you had hanging on the wall, guess what you do with it? You put it down. If you have a problem clicking the wrong website, what do you do with the computer? You shut it down and you put it away for a while. I, I, I can't be around this thing right now. If you have a problem being alone, then you try not to be alone. Be with friends, be with people. And if you have problems controlling what you say and how you address people, then those are the things that you're always conscious of the next time you do talk to somebody, you're talking to yourself, keep yourself in control. Don't get upset. Don't curse. Don't say this. Don't say that. That's the first step towards repentance. A lot of people confuse this. They think this is the final part of it all, the tawbah. Like, once you feel regret and you say, Allah, astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah, I've made tawbah. Actually, no, you're not even close to it yet. So tawbah, the first stage of repenting to Allah, is you physically have to look at what are the things around you that has encouraged you or influenced you to fall into that mistake to begin with. So you start what? An overall assessment of yourself and your surroundings. That's called tawbah. When you do that, then it starts to lead to some other things which we're going to see here in this ayah in a minute. So, repentance is mandated on Allah for those who knowingly did a wrong deed. Now, the wrong deed that is mentioned in this ayah is called su'. Okay? لِلَّذِينَ يَعْمَلُونَ السُّوء Su' is what? It's one of the names of sin and mistake in the Qur'an. You have dhambun, you have ma'asiyah, and you have sayyi'ah or su'. Su' literally means a face that is hard to look at. It's despicable. It's like a monster. So if you ever, if you ever find yourself, you look at something and you're like this, you're like, oh, oh my God. That's called su' sayyi'ah. In Arabic, you use this word to describe you know, 
some, someone's face who's hard to look at. That's pretty much how you, how you use this term. Now, Allah says, He describes and He calls sin, su. Why? Why does Allah call sins, sayyit or su? It's despicable behavior, but more so, how should the one who's committed the sin feel? The kind of remorse that you feel is what? You're, you're like so uncomfortable and disgusted by what you just said or did. Now let me ask you, how often do you ever hear that someone who's done the simplest, you know, evil or sin, whatever it might be, that they actually walk out of it feeling that way? Oh my God, I can't believe I said a bad word. <sighs> I feel awful. Subhanallah. How could I say that sentence? I hate her. That's a, such a horrible sentence to say. Or they talked back in a, in a rude manner. They responded in a rude way. You know, some people, they feel sayyid when they don't say thank you to someone. And some people are like, oh my God, that was so rude of me. I didn't even say thank you to them. And they went all out and they've done all of that for me. And I couldn't, subhanAllah, how do... that's called sayyid. That's how Allah wants us to feel every time we make a mistake. You're supposed to feel really uncomfortable with yourself. You know, some of the ulama, they said that sayyid is also, you have a tough time looking in the mirror after a sin. Because why? You're ashamed of yourself. Like, how could you do that? How could you disobey to that degree? All of this is supposed to lead to somewhere. You know, you, there are some psychologists that denounce this kind of attitude and say it's, it's actually unhealthy for you to, to do this, to talk yourself down or make yourself feel sayyid or miserable. Some psychologists have dug into it to such a degree where they've completely revoked and, and you know, dispel this whole idea of feeling miserable. So when you do fall into a mistake or you've done something regrettably, then you should just feel confident to get out of it and walk away. But Quran's message is very different. Allah wants us to feel a bit of the spiritual pain behind the sins that we do. You know when you don't feel sayyid and commit a sin? Do you know when that doesn't happen? There is, a, there is an, a, a, a situation where if you do something wrong, you won't always or necessarily feel sayyid afterwards. What, what, what kind of sin is that? Hmm? It's become normalized. Okay. What were you going to say? You're looking at it the wrong way. If I commit something and I do something wrong, and it's actually good for me that I don't feel sayyid, and I can still recover out of that mistake, what kind of sin is that? It's the sin that is done unintentional. Okay? So you fall into something unintentional. You didn't expect that you were going to say or do the thing that happened. Say is not applied to you now. Because why? So some of the ulama added to this that say or su is usually connected to people who, now this is what some of you mentioned, where you've become desensitized 
you stopped caring, you stopped, you know, it, you start seeing the ramifications of your mistake. It started to disrupt your relationships with your family, your children, your parents, everyone around you. Everything's been flipped upside down. Now, in turn, you're supposed to feel this way. The problem with this concept of sayya, it's a really hard subject to teach in 2019. It's really hard to teach this. For obvious reasons, right? We're, we're so exposed to things that are the complete opposite of what we're trying to do and live by that it is very, very common and very normal for someone to be desensitized to sin. And, and that's the challenge. And that's how we tackled, when we first started this class, we looked at the conclusion of Surah Ali Imran. Remember that? Remember the concept of Al-Bab? Who remembers what Al-Bab was? Good. The ones who um, they think clearly about anything. So the people of Al-Bab, when they fall into mistake, they see it right away. They can recognize when it happened. And they don't get this say feeling anymore. They know exactly what to do and they recover immediately. Can I ask you something? How do you get there? How do you get to that stage? Is there something you're supposed to do or not do so that even when you do fall into sayyid, that you, you see it and you're like, God, I can't believe that's me. Okay, I don't want that anymore. How do you get to that stage? So you have to be aware, you have to be conscious of your surroundings. Anything else? You have to be conscious of Allah, so there should be some kind of connection. Good. Brothers, how do you get there? How do you get there where when you do fall into this, you have control over it, you recognize it and, and you recover? This is the one thing that every young person on earth... No matter how huge, if you are sincere, Allah is always forgiving, that there's a comeback. Good, okay. So, so staying hopeful that Allah is always there and He's always going to accept and forgive us. Okay, anything else? Stop comparing yourself to others and internally try to be there. Okay. So just focus on yourself. Don't compare yourself to anything else. Is there anything else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good. Everybody hear that? I think that there, for me, there is one thing, if you have it, there isn't a sin or mistake on earth, except you'll recover for, from it, you'll recognize it, you'll get through all of these feelings of sayyid and feeling miserable, you'll get over all of that, and that's confidence. If you're confident that you can live with mistakes and recover from them, there is nothing in this world except you will confront it and then you will overcome it. And I don't get that, just I don't pull that out of nothing. I actually get that from the conclusion of Surah Al Baqarah. Because it's only that surah that Allah did something with His Prophet. It never happened anywhere else in Quran. Allah said to His Prophet, now remember, Surah Al Baqarah is a Medini surah, right? So you're talking about at least 13 years of Islam is done. It's already been in Meccan, in Meccan period. 
As soon as they got to Medina, Allah gives them Surah Al-Baqarah. But then at the end of the surah, what does Allah say to him? Amana Rasul bima unzila ilayhi min rabbihi wal mu'minun. He tells his prophet that already has iman. You, my prophet, amana Rasul. You need to also be believe. You need to have iman. He already has it. Why, what is Allah really saying here? You need to be confident in yourself and in this message. And if you can do that, then when you teach the world, they'll listen to you. If you're not confident in this message, then how are you going to project it to others? So if you're not confident in yourself that you have the strength to overcome these things, then it's a really, really difficult journey ahead of you. And this is something that, is, that our Qur'an does really, really well. is to how to you know, really capture the mu'min and strengthen his or her confidence within themselves. And sahabas, all of them did this. You know, all, there are many sahabas that committed zina pre-Islam. And those same sahabas, uh, the Prophet looked at them and said, you're going to Jannah. How'd they do that? How'd they go from that to this? It's because they really had faith, confidence in their message. They and this is what some of you have mentioned, that you study this stuff, you take it seriously, and then Allah will show you the fruits of this deen. So when you fall and you're at your lowest in your life, that is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will allow the strength and confidence and you being positive, you trusting His message, all of those things will manifest and you're able to get through. It's, a, it's, a, it's easier said than done, of course. It's a hard thing to teach as well. So, let's continue. By the way, Arabic students, Allah said here, إِنَّمَا التَّوْبَةُ عَلَى اللَّهِ لِلَّذِينَ يَعْمَلُونَ السُّوء Allah didn't say, يَفْعَلُونَ السُّوء عَمَل is different from فِعْلٌ What's the difference? When you say فِعْلٌ, if Allah said يَفْعَلُونَ they're randomly doing craziness, randomly falling into sin. يَعْمَلُونَ they know exactly what they're doing. And why is it coming to jahalat? Mm -hmm. We're, we're going to come to it, right? Even though they're... So, so put this together. This is really important because no translation can capture this. This is why we're spending some time on this verse because it's very important to every one of us. right? We can all relate to this because we all commit mistakes and sins. But then the language here that's used is capturing something very particular about the sinner. Allah said, يعملون. They are conscious of the wrong they're doing. And they still keep doing it. So after su, you see the word bijahala, jahlun. Have you heard that word before? Jahil? What does that mean? When you say ignorant, what are you saying about that person? Because that's a common translation. So, but it's not very clear. What, what do you mean when you say that somebody is ignorant? You're saying that they're what? They have no control over them, their behavior, their attitude, their feelings. Whatever they feel like saying, they just blurt it out. That's called jahil, jahlun. When you don't have control over your emotions. Whatever you feel, you just, I don't care. So what? I'll say what I want to say. I'll act the way I want to act. I'll behave the way I want to behave. So what? That's called jahalun. So put it together. Allah said, 
that even though the, the people who did these kinds of sins actually knew what they were doing, to Allah, that's a very jahil behavior. So despite you being conscious of your behavior, to Allah, He's looking at it like you're a wild, out-of-control animal. Stop that. Do you see that? It's unbelievable. It's extremely powerful. Because this is going to address the people who say things like, yeah, I know what I was doing. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. I'm, I'm good. No. <laughs> yeah, you, you, f towards each other. Yeah, okay, fine. No, I don't need counseling. I don't need no advice. Mom, he doesn't need to read Quran on me. I'm fine. To Allah, that kind of behavior, when you fall into sins that you're aware, you know it's wrong and you still do it, Allah still calls you jahil, just like the person who has no Islam and no control over themselves. Subhanallah. It's unbelievable. That's how, that's the imagery that Allah gives us about people who constantly sin. And I say constantly because why? Ya'malun is in the present tense. Didn't say amalu. Said ya'malun. Present tense means it's continuous and it's continuing even forward, tomorrow and the next day, they keep doing the same thing. So that continuousness of, the, of these particular actions, Allah says, it's become now a bad habit, and that's jahil to him. Stop doing that. Really, really powerful. And I hope that the end of the day, that when you look at this verse, the point behind it is, and, and let's all, you know, be real with ourselves, right? We want to think about us when we look at this verse. We want to, right now, at this very moment, see our faces all over this verse. If there's something within us, in our own lives, that's happening, that's out of control, and somehow we need to stop it, because why? Allah has counted us amongst the most ignorant of people if we don't. Be jahada. But then, the ayah does take a shift. min qarib. Then they repent soon after. alayhim. Then those are the people Allah will accept the repentance of. What's happened here, students? They, then they repent soon after. What's happened here? They realize their wrong behavior. They turn back to Allah. When? Exactly. How, much, how often do you hear about repentance done that way? As soon as they fell into the mistake, they said, Astaghfirullah, and they started repenting. Oh my God, we can't let that happen again. It almost sounds like when Allah talks about sin in Quran, He wants us to have the attitude that we are in the state of spiritual emergency right away. As soon as a sin happens, there's these alarm bells that are going off in your heart. Everything is going wild because of one sin. It's unbelievable. How many times have you ever heard or seen people talk about sin this way? That's the tragedy that we're living in. Because people don't look at the stuff like this anymore. It's really hard. As a matter of fact, Every time I teach stuff like this, sometimes people will say, you know, that's real extreme. My God, who does that? We can't keep track of everything we say and do. And, and that's the problem. This is Allah really telling you and I, 
You know, you can't lose focus on the most important thing, which is what you see in the mirror every day. You can't lose focus on that. You know, sometimes um, I'll give a khutbah somewhere, and it'll be so random, and it'll be about something totally out of this world. No matter what's happening around us, I'll just be like, you know what? I want to talk about the Day of Judgment and how you know, we are going to be accountable, etc. and all of that stuff. And I will do my thing. And when I'm done, somebody will still come up to me almost every time and say, you know, I appreciate what you said, but there's so many problems happening in the world. Why are you talking about that? Another time I'll talk about the description of Jannah. When you walk into Jannah, what's the first things you'll start to see? And I'll do my thing and after be like, okay, thanks, but we're not there yet. You know, we have this, it's happening in this country, that has happened in that country, this you know, like I'm supposed to be the world's problem solver in 20 minutes of a khutbah, right? Like, what do you want from me, <laughs> right? But all your problems are solved if you are conscious of the day of judgment. Exactly, and to be conscious of these things, who do you have to focus on? This is the thing that we're losing more and more day by day. This We're losing ourselves as we journey day by day. We're forgetting these little things in between. So what ends up happening? Somebody will backbite, but they don't see no problem with it. Until you say, oh my God, okay, stop talking about them. Then they'll look at you and think something's wrong with you. What's wrong with you? Why do you don't want to talk about them? You know? They'll think you're the one that's messed up. This ayah really talks to us in a very deep and personal way. And then let me just finish this up. Um, فَأُولَٰئِكَ يَتُوبُ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِمْ And Allah, um, it mentions here, uh, then those are the people Allah will accept the repentance from. Right? So when you, so put this together. Ulama comment on this, by the way. When you follow a sin with immediate repentance, it will almost always be, ithnillah guarantee acceptance from Allah. When you delay your repentance and you delay it for, you know, just being irresponsible about it, not taking it seriously, losing sight of it, etc., this is where you risk the acceptance of Allah being farther, farther away. So, one of the secret ingredients, inshallah, to always guarantee your tawbah is accepted is you do it when? Immediately after the mistake. You don't delay. If that is your attitude with sin, bi-idhnillahi ta'ala, um, people will see and notice this from you. It is a characteristic that Allah will allow others to see and appreciate in you. This person is always conscious of themselves. That's how we have to be. Okay? وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَلِيمًا حَكِيمًا Can I ask you, why does this ayah end this way? Okay. Allah has knowledge of everything and He has wisdom. He has knowledge of your heart. Good, good. Anything else? We're talking about Toba, Toba, Toba. Sin, sin, sin. Recover, recover, all of these things. Then we just ended off with Allah has knowledge over everything and He is the all wise. What's the connection here? Anything else anyone wants to add to that? Mm hmm. So I see two connections here. So 
person who doesn't have faith and a person who does, a person who doesn't have faith, there's no point of turning their back. They refuse and accept their repentance so they continue. But as a Muslim, even if you, it's telling you to have hope that your repentance will be accepted. And then furthermore, it's Good. Yeah, good. 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 Everybody get that? When you repent, it's between you and Allah, case closed. When you repent and how you repent is no one's business but you and Allah. You know, sometimes I get asked the question from brothers and sisters both when they have made past mistakes and they want to get married. And their potential asks them, okay, have you ever done this or that? Or have you involved with anyone else and you've done this or that? They're very hesitant and reluctant to respond and expose at least that past behavior to them. What would you say here? So if you have repented, then it's none of that person's business. Your potential husband or wife, none of, they don't need to know. Is it like that across the board for all of your mistakes and sins? I argue that anything that could potentially harm or, get, or involve itself in the relationship should be something talked about and how, to what extent you talk about that is up to you. The least you mention about that, it's, it's up to you. If you want to go into more detail, it's up to you. But at the end of the day, judgment, <laughs> that's no one's business. That's between you and Allah. So I will say something to you because we, if we get married, this might come up later on. So this is what it is, but I've already repented to Allah. So it's up to you if you like that or not. That's what I would say. Um, so, so the idea is with Alim and Hakim here. Allah has knowledge of all the things you've done even when you don't, you forget. Which is very normal. We will always forget a lot of the things we've said and done. But you're still making tawbah. So sometimes your tawbah sounds like this. Oh Allah, forgive me, forgive me of my past sins. You know, these sentences sound so generic and it's just like so repetitive but every sentence is meaningful to Allah because he is alim you don't take that for granted you know sometimes you know some of my umrah um, group is here one of the things I used to say to them um, was don't take your repentance for granted don't take any astaghfirullah you say for granted any subhan any tasbih nothing because when you're there um, the feeling that you get when you go to Allah's house is that you feel He's watching you alone and He's, he's forgotten everyone else. You feel like you've, the spotlight has just been put on you. So don't take every dhikr or dua for granted because you don't know. One astaghfirullah you said from the heart and you cried about it, man, your whole life is set and Allah will guarantee you will be from Ahl Jannah for that one astaghfirullah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Because just how we don't know our sins, we, we also don't know how many astaghfirullahs and tasbih we've made. So all of that Allah says, I'm Alim, I've got it all recorded, you don't worry about it. 
My Surat Ali Imran students, do you remember a verse that sounds like this? يَوْمَ تَجِدُ كُلُّ نَفْسٍ مَا عَمِلَتْ مِنْ خَيْرٍ مُحْضَرًا وَمَا عَمِلَتْ مِنْ سُوءٍ On the day of judgment, your scale is brought in front of you, and it will be muhdara. Muhdara means when something is present in front of you, and you can see all corners of it. You can see the back, the side, this side, everything, without turning. That's muhdara. Allah said your scale of good deeds are going to be placed right in front of you as muhdara. So you know what that means? That means that when you look at your scale, you're going to be like, oh my God, every astaghfirullah is there. Every salam I've ever given, oh my God, it's actually made it on the scale. Even that random salam I gave at the grocery store to another Muslim, it actually, Allah counted it for something. That's the most amazing thing about deeds, good deeds. You know, it's, it's, it's incredible to see that. Every Eid Mubarak I've ever given, oh my God, they all got counted. The same ayah also captures the opposite as well, than the scale of bad deeds. Oh my goodness, the one time I swore, it's there. Allah counted it. So now he's going to ask me about all of this stuff. The one time I shrugged, you know, against my mom, she asked me for something, I just said, whatever. Ya Rabb, it's the first bad deed on top of that scale. You know, the one thing I uttered that was awful to my parents, or I disobeyed this, all of that, that's called muhtara. So Allah is saying that I have all the knowledge and it's going to be muhtara right in front of your face. But here, it's all about your tawbah. And then Hakima, what does wisdom have to do with tawbah in this ayah? That Allah is the all-wise it's safe to say that the average Muslim, when they do commit a mistake, you know, you hope that they would make tawbah immediately. But a lot of the time, perhaps maybe most of the time, it doesn't happen that way. Would it be safe to say that Allah knows when is, when is the right time that this is going to happen? Allah knows that, okay, that umrah or that hajj you've been longing for because you want tawbah out of it. Just, you got to trust him. He'll, he'll make this happen at the right moment. So Hakim here, the wisdom captured from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the right time for all of this to happen and recover from is still under his control as well. So you might walk out of here with the intention, man, every time I do something wrong, I'm going to make sure, astaghfirullah, pray two raka'ats or something to just make tawbah. Allah is saying, ah, don't, not so fast. I'm still in charge. So what do you have to do to achieve the lesson of this ayah? What do you have to do? So you do your part, but trusting Allah is in ultimate control over everything. Anything else? Sincerity. That's it. You have to be sincere about your relationship with Allah. I cannot tell you enough. Sincerity is the open door to all khair every ounce of goodness in your life. Not even the Islamic stuff only, the religious stuff. Every ounce of goodness in your life is manifested through sincerity. How you talk and how you treat and how you are accepted by people around you will all sprout of how sincere you are as a human being. That is, that is, the, that is the heart of all of this. None of this works if you don't have that. That's why every book of every scholar of every subject starts off with what chapter? The chapter of what? Sincerity, ikhlas. Everything starts this way. Why? 
Because there's no point of continuing the book if you don't master that to begin with. That's what we did when we started this program, right? We briefly reminded everybody, make sure you know why you're here. Or else you're going to have something to talk about between you and Allah. Make sure you know why you drive here and get here every day, right? So this all could count for something. Like one of these verses is hujjatun lana, not hujjatun alayna. Like it's going to be something that will uplift us and not something that would bring us down or punish us. And may Allah protect us from that, okay? So number seven, number 18, I don't know if you have this in your book. There it is. I really apologize. I don't know why um, it's missing so many different things. But by the way, there is an updated version of this that's uh, been posted online. So you have access to two new booklets, the exact same, but all of the missing um, spaces and grammar er errors and so on have been corrected. One of the students in this program, I believe she's online, um, was gracious enough to go through all of this. And alhamdulillah, she's corrected everything. So you're welcome to, if you'd like to have that with you, or at least to refer to that. The way I look at these things when there's gaps like this, like now you're going to write down this ayah by hand, right? Oh my God, I just realized how red that looks, huh? Oh my God. That's hard to look at even. <laughs> oh my gosh. <clears throat> So, as you're writing, this is verse number 18. وَلَيْسَتِ التَّوْبَةُ لِلَّذِينَ يَعْمَلُونَ السَّيِّئَاتِ حَتَّى إِذَا حَضَرَ أَحَدَهُمُ الْمَوْتِ قَالَ إِنِّي تُبْتُ الْآنِ وَلِلَّذِينَ يَمُوتُونَ وَهُمْ كُفَّارُ أُولَئِكَ أَعْتَدَنَا لَهُمْ عَذَابًا أَلِيمًا Gosh, you know, verses like this are just, are, are really heavy. So in this verse now, Allah says, but repentance is not accepted of those who continue to do evil right up till the last minute. Remember, the word, the key word in this ayah here is continue. لِلَّذِينَ يَعْمَلُونَ السَّيِّئَةِ Again, right, present tense, they're constantly doing it. So repentance is not for the person who is just continuing on the same path, never reflecting, never trying, never conscious of anything. Just cruise control all the way. Until what? Until death comes to them. I can't tell you how many times I get asked to visit someone in the hospital, right? Sometimes I'll go and sometimes if I don't have the time, I don't. When I do go, sometimes I find myself in a really uncomfortable predicament. I'll walk in and I'll see the patient there and the family are all in tears, you know, they're on life support or what have you. And then they will ask me to do things that I'm really uncomfortable doing, which is like, you know, just read, some, read something over him or her or do ruqya or something so that all of their sins are forgiven. So I say to them, I was like, um, did this person, did they, you know, practice pray or so, do all the basic things. No, 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 no. But, you know, now that they're in this state and they're dying, you know, inshallah, Allah forgives and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, really? And you called me to facilitate the shortcut? Seriously? 
And it's just like, man, you know, don't get me wrong. I don't just walk out and be like, look, I'm not doing anything here. I'll do something, you know, and hope perhaps something would help. But the, this ayah is for situations like that. You cannot cop out the last minute with Allah. It doesn't work. Some of the Quraysh them had this attitude. In Islamic history, even from day one, Fir'aun. His repentance, at what point? When he saw all of his people drown, then he You know what's crazy? He didn't even say the Shahada. He didn't even go that far. He goes, لا إله إلا الذي آمنت به بنو إسرائيل وأنا من المسلمين. He just said, um, you know, there is no God except whatever Bani Israel is saying. What a guy, huh? He's standing by the sea. He watched all of his army drown. And then he's like, yeah, there's no God except whatever they're saying. He couldn't even say the Shahada completely. So, last minute, it was useless. So his repentance at this point was no help. And this was the... By the way, this, this tafsir I'm giving you is Ibn Abbas and the majority of the ulama of tafsir you know, say that this is the conclusion of this ayah is that at the last minute, you cannot cop out and say, okay, I'll say my shahada now because whoever says it at the time of death, what, what is the reward? Dakhil al-Jannah, right? They'll go in paradise. No, it doesn't really work. It's not that easy. Because if it was, there's no point of us even being here, right? There's no point of us doing all of this. So... Our equivalent to this is, as you see, there's someone dying in a hospital but never took Islam, so committed sins and never repented. Can't do that. So Allah continues and He says, um, What am I saying? Uh, Till death comes to them. You know what's amazing? Um, it's the wording. It's, it's as if Allah is actually quoting someone here. They say, oh, I am ready to repent now. There, it's almost there's a little bit of sarcasm here. Because Allah is not saying, oh, this is what they may say, or they may say a phrase similar to. He actually, you know, puts together a sentence that somebody, it sounds like somebody is even saying it. But there's nobody here. So there's a bit of sarcasm. It's like, oh, really? Now they're going to say, oh, okay, I'm going to repent now. Neither those who died in the state of disbelief or ingratitude. Those are the people we've prepared a painful punishment. In other words, people intentionally singing, knowing that tawbah will always be there for them. Those are the people that this punishment is prepared for. They're intentionally sinning because they know that tomorrow, you know, we're going to the masjid anyway, so we'll, we'll take care of things. I've had some, some people who um, I've, I've, I've gotten to know who before going to Hajj and Umrah, they were up to no good even the night before the flight. Yeah, trying to... Enjoy as much of anything that they can. Yeah. I've even had, um, you know, really crazy things, you know, you meet when you do this kind of job. You know, you really, things will blow your mind. You know, I've had even someone come up to me um, just after they had committed zina. 
they came straight to the masjid and, you know, they said, look, I'm coming from somebody's house and I'm married and I have all these children, etc. And I've been cheating on my blah, 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 and I've done this and now the other person is pregnant. You know, like, all of that, right? My point is this, right? You know, we, we already talked about making the mistakes and sin. So, you know, what you've done, you've done it. But this ayah here is giving you and I a clear warning. Don't do that stuff with the intention that you think, you know, this is the last time and inshallah we just repent. Now I'm going to change my life forever. No, 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 no. You know, you're still left with a big massive question mark in front of Allah where you're going to go, end up and what you're going to do. So my question to you is this. How do we protect ourselves from being part of this ayah? What do we do? Because if we do fall into a sin and consciously we're aware of it, but you know, let's just give the benefit of the doubt our faith is weak at that moment. You know, we all go through that. We'll have weak iman and weak faith at some point, and it happens spontaneously a lot of the times. Somebody cuts you off, and you know, you're just so angry, so you try to do the same thing to them, or you know, give them the finger, or say something to them. And that's not you, and you recognize it, but you're like, oh my God, when this is all over, I'm going straight to the masjid, or <laughs> something like that. How do you protect yourself from falling into this category? So, okay, you're right. This is like, this is like istighfar boot camp, right? So you go into istighfar 70 or 100 times a day, just like Prophet Sallam. I, I, I totally, totally, I can't disagree with that. My problem with it is, you need to have some level of strong faith to even do that. Let's, let's make it the worst case scenario that that person can't even get themselves to say astaghfirullah even once or twice. But they're a good person. How do you exempt yourself from this ayah? Hmm? So the point is at the end of the day, you say something, you curse or you do something and you're conscious of what you did was wrong, but you did it anyway with the idea, okay, I'm going to say something to this guy because he really cut me off bad, but I, once after this is done, I'm never going to do this again. Okay, okay, so, so you rely on some of the additional acts of worship that um, could perhaps protect you in cases like this, okay? That's good. This person has none of that. They're, they're, they're on just the basics, the fundamental stuff. They'll, their sunnahs only exist maybe on Jum'ah day. Mm -hmm. What was the key word that we said earlier? Make sure that the tawbah you do is sincere. So how you exempt yourself from this, even though you do a sin with the same attitude, is that tawbah has got to have sincerity attached to it. And perhaps bi-ithnillah, 
Allah may accept it from you. Despite you knew what you were doing, but you really were like, Ya Rabbi, oh Allah, protect me from even intentionally doing something like that. That is a mistake as well from me, O oh Allah. I did the sin, but I knew what I was doing was wrong. Ya Rabbi, erase that from my heart. You know when you start even attacking all of the things that lead you up to the sin? Man, that is where all of us want to be if we're not already there, right? It's everything is all about sincerity. So you see the question I wrote at the bottom there on the screen? What helps you make tawbah on a consistent basis? What helps you do that? That you stay on cruise control tawbah all the way. How do you, how do you get there? Sincerity. Now, now give me something a bit more practical now. What do you do to make sure you are there? So we have one about all of the sunan acts of worship. Not sunnah prayers only, but even those du'as of entering the home, entering the masjid, entering the bathroom, putting, getting dressed, going to bed, all of that stuff. Do you know why they're there? Do you know why we have a du'a for everything we do? You're always thinking about him. That's the secret, that's the secret blessing behind it all. It's to make you never forget him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. When you live your life like that, Oh my God, there is no human being that compares to you on earth. There's no creature on earth in comparison to you. That's what the ulama did. If you ever want to know the some of the secret ingredients, how ulama got to the stage they were, they were praying tahajjud for Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, prayed tahajjud for 40 years with the same wudu from Isha. What does that tell you he did? The same wudu from Isha, he prayed tahajjud with until Fajr for 40 years, which means he after Isha would be praying all night until Fajr. How do you get to that level? There are some ulama even today that do some, some things that are very similar and they reach these high, this high level of knowledge and discipline. They do this with what? Just make it count. Make the tawbah count when you do it. And you know what you, know you got to really love about the subject of tawbah? There is never ever one way to do it. So it appeals to all of us at every level we're at with respect to devotion. You don't know nothing about Islam, but you know there you got to feel some kind of remorse and regret. Oh, that's part of tawbah too. You're good. That's the starting point. If you only know the only Arabic word you've ever learned was astaghfirullah, okay, that's the starting point. It counts. So it's the, one of the only subjects of Islam, no matter where you are, you can still fall into and be part of that. Um, let's take one more verse. Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, la yahillu lakum an tarithu nisa akarha. It is not permitted for you to inherit um, women forcibly. Oh wow, this brings up a, a different subject here now. Okay? So, So basically what would happen back in the days is that if a tribal leader passes away, they leave behind their wife or wives, 
and whatever children that he had from any of these women, they would not want that particular wife or i.e. mother to leave the family because now the husband has passed away and marry someone else. So one disgusting practice that they had was even sometimes the kids or the stepsons would marry their stepmom to force them to stay in the family and not go off with anyone else. Or they would have other people within the city to say, hey, um, my dad passed away, but uh, these are his wives. Just choose one, marry them. So you'll be in my family and they'll stay here too and we all live together. In other words, create a, a circumstance where it forces these women to stay and not get out of that situation. It's, there's no, no way out. So this is where Allah, again, this is another thing that Allah eradicated from the evil practices pre-Islam. So we already talked about inheritance. We already talked about rights of orphans. Well, here's another one that women did not have that Allah gave them now. That they will now have the power to say no. And any forced marriages is now completely abrogated. And our Messenger told us that the marriage that is forceful, that is coerced, is unacceptable. Meaning it is an invalid nikah. The moment she, even if she doesn't say anything, but she expresses, you know, emotion and, and, and feelings and actions, it's very apparent to her that she's totally against all of this. All of that counts as something. It counts as part of her voice. You know, in some cultures, it's really scary for her to speak out and say, uh, I don't want to marry him. She could, she could be, she could put herself in a very dangerous situation. So a lot of cultures, even till this day, just the culture itself is so intimidating for her that she kind of just goes with it and be like, I guess so. I guess I have to do it because if I say anything, things can happen to me. Well, Islam said, okay, all of that, throw it out the window now. Now she has this right. This was a big deal, by the way. The idea of women having a voice is like just non-existent. In, in pre-Islam. So now they have rights to inherit. And then the children them, them have rights. And now, oh my God, now they can actually say no to the tribal leader. I don't want to marry you. This happened with Umar ibn al-Khattab as well. He proposed to a woman. And she said to him, I don't want to marry you because you're too strict. You know what Umar did? I said, okay. He was actually refused marriage from this woman. Imagine, that's Amir al-Mu'mineen. You know how intimidating that is to do? That's the, that's the leader of the Muslim world. That's one of the best companions to touch the ground. He just asked for marriage to you out of all the people he could have had. And you said no right up to his face. And you told him why. You're too strict, man. You're too harsh with people. I don't want to marry you. Umar radiallahu an, he eventually, you know, he accepted it, of course, but he, he also learned from that to calm down and to soften up. Those are some of the experience. Now, this happened several times with him, right? Several times there were different women. Some of them were the elderly women as well that would meet him. And all of a sudden, you know, Khuwayla bin Thalaba radiallahu anha, 
she'll see Umar when she was an old, old woman and Umar had just started growing up. She'll see Umar radiallahu anh, in the marketplace and be like, Umar, come here. Stand here. And the way she would call him, some of Umar radiallahu anh's friends, his companions would be like, Ya Umar, you let an old lady talk to you like that? You know what he would say? said, her. When she spoke, Allah listened to her and revealed verses because of her. So if she wants to talk to me, and throughout the whole night until tomorrow, I will stand here and not interrupt her. He learned how to calm down and respect. Respect especially women. See these little instances, all this was unheard of. So this is a big deal, verse number 19, is a big deal in the Muslim world. Okay? Then Allah adds to it. He says, he adds to it, is, and he says, um, And do not force them. From the word عضل, to restrict. Don't force them, so don't compel them. They're saying no, no, no. Adl also means to scold someone and to hold them back. So they're trying to run away from this contract. That's called adlun. And Allah says, don't do that. So two things. First is, you cannot, it is not permissible for any of you that you inherit women forcibly. So two things have happened here. Number one, so in context, remember I said to you that women used to be the product of inheritance as well? So like when, when he passes away, he actually put a value on his wife and said, okay, you kids, if you want to sell your mom, this is how much he's worth, right? So that's the disgusting and despicable practice of many that happened, right? So that was eradicated, right? Then the second thing was the forcible marriages. So لا تعضلوهن, don't force them to get into relationships like that. لِتَذْهَبُوا بِبَعْضِ مَا آتَيْتِمُهُنَّ إِلَّا أَنْ يَأْتِينَ بِفَاحِشَةٍ مُبَيِّنَةٍ And then it continues, and don't hold back from them that you remove some of the things you've given to them. So don't take back what you've given to them. So what is this talking about? It's talking about the mahar. It's also talking about any gifts and items that you've given her at the time of marriage. If a divorce or something happens and the marriage is broken... You don't get to say, well, you know what? The carpet that I bought for our room, it's mine, give it to me. Your bed, give it to me. I bought the couch, give that to me too. You don't get to do that. Even like smaller items, like her jewelry, her watch, her car, you don't get to say, ah, all of that's mine, because I bought it for you. Even till this day, in in an Islamic divorce, no party has the right to do that. There are some exceptions actually where you are required to leave those things behind or you're required to even provide some of those things post-marriage, post-divorce, right? So after the divorce, you have to leave certain things behind. There are some cases like that. Like, it's really just what's hers is hers, case closed. Whether you like it or not, when you bought it, you bought it for her. You don't get to take it back just because the things didn't work out. So Allah says, don't hold back from them that you remove some of the things that you've given them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
I knew this this question would come up, and uh, um, so for for the online students, right? So what happens if a forcible marriage had occurred? Believe it or not, I wouldn't be surprised that some of the classes I teach that there are students in here that actually have a, a marriage similar to that, right? That's how common this is, and um, the only thing I can say to you is that that is a a situation that has to be judged case by case. There isn't a rule, general rule, that goes across the board for all of those types of marriages, right? It requires some, some research, it requires conversation, and a lot of things have to talk about to what led to a marriage like that to begin with, who was involved. A lot of the times, even marriages like that don't even happen here. They happen abroad in other places where a lot of the rights for her are restricted to begin with. So I can't, um, I can't really give... Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, no doubt. You know, I, I don't deny for a moment that it doesn't happen here, right? So my point is, is that at the end of the day, wherever this occurs, it is treated by a case-by-case -case scenario, and it usually has to involve someone in the middle, like, you know, an imam or a scholar, to kind of look and judge what the situation is. And he can decide right then and there um, whether this marriage is nullified, or it's still a valid marriage, or it can continue, etc., or there's a penalty. There are a lot of things that can still make that kind of marriage, that if it does turn out to be a good one, there are a lot of things that can still happen to keep that marriage intact. But if it breaks, it has to be done officially by someone like that. Mm -hmm. So the general rule is no. The only time you, the man gets the mahar back after a divorce is if the marriage was not consummated. Yeah, and one, one opinion is even half. Imam Malik, rahimahullah, his opinion was just half the mahar. She still gets something. So again, when a situation like that happens, it is, must be judged. I will never, ever give a fatwa on a marriage just like that, open, you know, generic for everyone. Because I've learned over the years that everybody's situation is very unique. So they must, must sit with someone in order to have their, their case judged, okay? Let's pause here, insha'Allah. Um, next week. Maybe, huh? I need to get permission from my wife if I should come here next week or not, huh? Yeah. Um, I, I, I would like to um, take the week off, if that's okay. Okay. Not all my classes are canceled, but at least the heavy ones like this, I would like to um, keep that. So we will see you the following week, inshallah, Thursday. Please, please, if you know that there are students who are in this class that are not here, and you have contact with them, please remind them because you have some...